have you come back. Please, sir. We've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures, think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. Two weeks ago, we looked at part one of that. When they first saw the wizard, great analogy for our prayer life, coming to the great and powerful God. And like the tin man, we have matters of the heart that need caring for. Like the cowardly lion, we need courage to face life's issues. Like the scarecrow, we need wisdom. And like Dorothy, we need help finding our way. And we sometimes fail to pray because... Maybe we're just afraid if the veil were pulled away, we'd find out that Jesus is just a good man, not a great God. There's a lot of things that keep us off of our knees. Fortunately, we have God's word to guide us into the presence of the God who Jesus says is our Father in heaven. I'm going to invite you again to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we take the next step in Jesus' school of prayer. We're going to begin reading again at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Just by way of review, Jesus isn't interested in telling us what to pray. Even though there's great value in saying it as we did, the Lord's Prayer is meant to teach us how to pray. This then is how you should pray. It's a model for prayer. What we have seen so far is that prayer is first relationship. It's our Father that we're praying to. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to enter into relationship, to be reconciled. His Father is now our Father, and He's the Father in heaven. If you don't have a relationship with God, then you haven't really begun your prayer journey. If you only pray to God when things are going bad, and it's roughly a negotiation, you know what I'm talking about. Lord, if you'll step in here, I promise I'll go to church or I'll return my neighbor's ladder. Lord, if you'll help me win the lottery, I'll, I'll give a, a bunch of it to help people. As though God's up there going, well, hmm, those aren't bad terms. God has made it possible for you to enter in and know Him intimately. The second thing we saw is that prayer is commitment. Prayer is about aligning ourselves, our will, our priorities to God's will and His priorities, which is called His kingdom, His reign in our lives and on earth. We have to get that right first. And then finally we come to prayer as reliance, bringing our requests to God. And we're in our second week on that. Last week we looked at the first of the four petition statements in the prayer. Give us forgive us, and then today we're going to look at lead us and deliver us. I think Jesus is saying these four things categorize all of the concerns in our lives that we're to bring to God. In the Hebrew thinking, bread was analogous to everything we need for life, not just physically, but our soul, our emotions as well. So when we say give us our daily bread, we're saying, Lord, I am reliant on you for my existence. The second thing we looked at last week was forgive us. And that's what gives us relationship with God in the first place, is to understand that there's a barrier between us and God. The Bible calls that sin. It's our rebellion. It's our, our selfishness. And that separated us from God. But Christ died for that very sin. And we can receive forgiveness because he took that punishment. Then there's this interesting if, as we forgive those who trespass against us, our ability to receive God's free grace is wrapped up in our ability to pass it on. We are forgiven and therefore we gladly forgive others. Forgive one another as in Christ God forgave you, the Apostle Paul says. I want to spend a couple minutes hitting back on that because if you haven't been hurt by people yet, just wait a while. <laughs> It's going to happen. All of us will experience betrayal and hurt. And those people come to mind when Jesus says, if you do not forgive 
those that have sinned against you their sins, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your sins. It's very hard. It's hard for me to know when I've actually forgiven somebody. Would you say that's true of you? How do I know I've actually forgiven them? And I think that there are two mistakes we make in relation to forgiving. First, we assume that forgiveness can only be given when somebody asks for it. And, and we, we have these scenarios in our mind of these people coming and saying, I was so wrong. We fantasize. We dream about this. We want acknowledgement. But this kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about doesn't require that people ask for it. I could imagine the, the depth of the wounds that are here. And the thing you have to remember is that you don't have to be enslaved to that pain waiting for someone to come and acknowledge it. This forgiveness you can extend without someone asking. There's no such requirement here. And the second mistake we make in terms of forgiveness is we think that forgiveness is the same as reconciliation. Somehow I've got to feel like I used to about this person. Like that old Cher song from the late 90s, If I could turn back time. Can't turn back time. Because our brain remembers. You know that phrase, forgive and forget? Show me where that is in the Bible in relation to humans. It's not there. It's not there. God separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. God can forget. To forgive is truly divine in that sense. But we're human. We remember. So if my ability to forgive someone is rooted in my ability to turn back the clock or forget what they've done, then frankly, if my gray matter is working at all, I'll never be able to forgive. But that's a mistaken understanding of forgiveness. You see, that's reconciliation. That's peacemaking. And Scripture has a different teaching about that. And there are times where that's an important thing to do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That term forgive simply means this, to release someone from a debt. Same term that you'd hear in a court of law when someone is released from a financial debt or a penalty because of a law that they broke. It's to let go. It's to release someone from our desire that they receive punishment. You know, that would still be hard to do, but it's not impossible. I could get there with God's help. In fact, Christ seems to indicate that not only can we get there, we need to get there. Because we don't understand that the depth of woundedness that we experience from these people is the same depth of woundedness that we dealt to our relationship with God because of our own rebellion? How can we honestly admit our own need for forgiveness if we think someone else is not worthy of forgiveness? Does that make sense to you? I could um, take a, a bird that's in a cage and I could free it. I could open the gate of the cage, but that bird has to make a decision to fly away. Christ has offered forgiveness. He set us free. But we can't live in the grace God has for us because we choose instead to remain prisoners of the wounds that others have committed. So forgiveness is for you. It frees you from their darkness 
And it opens you up to receive fully God's grace in your life. I can't stress that enough, and I felt like you wouldn't mind if I came at it one more time. If you ever want to hit the mark when you're talking to a group, talk about woundedness. It's essential for us to know how to deal with that in order to be able to walk free from it and walk free in Christ in grace. Now let's move on to the, to the other two we're going to talk about today. Lead us not into temptation. This is about kingdom living. I'm living for His fame. I'm living for His kingdom under His authority. And I'm living so that His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, which has to begin here. So I want what God wants. In fact, let me put it better this way. I want to want what God wants. (laughs) Because there's a part of me that resists it terribly. And when I'm saying, lead me not to temptation, I'm keeping in mind that life to which God has called me And I'm saying, Lord, I want to live a kingdom life. Look with me at Romans 12, verse 1. In fact, let's say this together. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says that real worship isn't about us getting all moody and warm and fuzzy when we sing songs. See, we gauge worship based on what we feel. Oh, worship was wonderful. Well, well, what do you mean by that? I was moved by it. Why was the worship bad? I didn't get anything out of it. It wasn't my taste. When we determine the value of worship based on what we receive, you know what that means? That means you're the object of the worship. That's the worst form of idolatry. And you know what? It takes place in churches all over America every Sunday. Worship is about what God is receiving from us. He's the object of our worship. I love that today we focus so much on the gospel and on our creeds in our songs today. One of the true standards of real worship is that Christ is to be exalted. We name His name, we exalt Him, and it results in the glory of God the Father. You read Philippians 2. You'll see what I mean by that. What Paul is getting at in Romans 12 is that real worship is your life offered as a sacrifice to God. He's alluding to Old Testament worship where the lamb is brought and offered as a sacrifice for sin. But we are called to be a living sacrifice. We set ourselves apart for God. It's our lives lived as holy that is your true worship. So let me ask you based on that, did you worship this week? Was your life set apart for God? If not, can I offer a simple little prayer to help you get there? (laughs) Lead us not into temptation. God uses clean vessels. He's honored by them, and He uses them. How many of you were out working on your ice dams or clearing snow off your roof or shoveling? All right. Imagine you came in after all that hard work. You were really thirsty. You went into the kitchen You open up the cabinet, and there isn't a clean glass in the cabinet. You open up the dishwasher, they're all in there, and they're all dirty. But you're really thirsty. You look above the sink, and there's a peanut butter jar sitting there, recently cleaned and scrubbed for recycling. You grab the peanut butter jar, you fill it with water, you drink it, and you're satisfied. What's the difference between the peanut butter jar 
and the glasses. One was clean. God uses vessels that are clean, not classy. (laughs) You can take that to the bank. Three thoughts here. We all struggle with temptation. That's a common thing. Will we ever be perfect? Yes, when we get to heaven. But we are to grow in sanctification, and it's that growth. It's that moving more towards Christ-likeness that is an act of sacrificial honor and worship to God. Second, if we are committed to God's purposes, then we must be set apart. But then third, asking God to lead us from temptation assumes our willingness to actually follow His lead. We're not just saying, God, keep me out of trouble. We're saying, God, lead me in a path, and I'm going to go where you lead me. You can't make excuses. Any of you remember a guy named Flip Wilson? He was a comic, and he would do all these mischievous things, and then he would say, anybody? The devil made me do it. Back in the golden age of, no, no, it wasn't. (laughs) The devil doesn't make us do anything. God's willing to lead. We need to follow. A lot of us fall into sin because we're asking God to do what he has directed us to do, and that's flee the evil desires. So it presumes a willingness to follow. Let's move now into the final petition, deliver us from evil. Now, you'll notice in the traditional prayer it says evil, but in the New International Version, what does it say? Deliver us from the evil one. And you might think, well, which one? Well, I think both. (laughs) The word evil means pain-ridden, laborious trouble. And when we say, Lord, deliver us from that, we're recognizing that that's the impact of sin. In a moment, we're going to look at a phrase, be sober-minded. That word sober-minded means this, keeping your eye on the consequences of your actions. When we say, Lord, deliver us from evil, and evil being pain-ridden, laborious trouble, we are being sober-minded. We are recognizing that if we go down a path that God is not leading us to, the result is going to be devastating. We don't want to go there. Let me give you an example. A man and a woman begin a flirtatious conversation. One of them or both are married, maybe at work or maybe even in the church. That gets a little closer and a little closer and Thoughts begin to drift about what it would mean to do a little more than just talk. An emotional attachment begins. That's toying with sin. And the person that says, I can handle that. I can play with fire because I I know when to stop. That person, in the right circumstances, will fail. Usually what keeps people from falling into sin, who get that involved with each other, is circumstances in their lives that don't make it possible. But in the perfect setting, a person that is not being sober-minded, but is blindly trusting their own ability, will fail. In a different universe, those same two people strike up a conversation, and some 
connection seems apparent that you know is not appropriate. And as a Christian, you think to yourself, I'm going to walk away from this right now. I'm thinking, what would happen to my marriage? What would happen to my kids? What would happen to the name of Christ? I'm being sober-minded, therefore I am being delivered from evil. That's part of what the Holy Spirit's work is in our life. Convicting us of sin. Keeping in our mind the potential impact of those wrong choices. But now let's look at the idea of it being the evil one. This term in the Lord's Prayer is the same term that Jesus uses every time he speaks about Satan. Let's say this together. Be sober-minded, for your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The adversary. This is very serious. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces and authorities, a highly structured spiritual force that is working contrary to God's plan. Our hearts are the battlefield of spiritual forces of this world, trying to literally destroy us. We know that the Bible teaches that as Christians, Satan cannot ultimately take us, that we are protected by God's grace. But the kingdom of God is now, but yet to come. We're still in this world. Satan is the prince and power of this world. I've heard preachers say, Satan knows he's been defeated. He's just trying to cause as much trouble as he can until that time's over. Yes, the Bible says Satan has been defeated. He was defeated at the cross, but can you show me anywhere in the Bible that says that Satan has acknowledged that he's been defeated? not there. What we do know is that no matter what Scripture declares and what God has accomplished, Satan is always working against it, and right now his goal is to devour you. He has not conceded defeat. He is out to end us and to end the church. And so we take this seriously. We say, Lord, don't lead us into temptation and deliver us not only from the consequences of our evil choices, but spare us, save us from those who war against our soul. Now, Paul talks about the full armor of God that can help us stand against the attacks of Satan, but that's another study for another time. It's enough for you to understand that in our prayer, we are to be mindful that we are at war. And we're asking God, we're saying, God, I'm dependent on you for my protection. Now as we wrap up, I've got a final thing there on the back of your notes that talks about the overlooked prayer requests in the Lord's Prayer. Normally, people would say, what are the petitions in the Lord's Prayer? And we would say, give us our daily bread, forgive us as we forgive, lead us not to temptation and deliver us from evil. But actually, they're not the only petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Let me remind you of the first requests that we are to make in the Lord's Prayer. Say them with me. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're actually asking God for those things. Did you ever think about it that way? They're petitions. I think that the Lord's Prayer is not just about how to pray, it's about how to live and how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
And so the four petitions that we've looked at are ways that we submit to our King. That we seek to bring honor to His name and to make Him famous. That we seek that His will is done in us as it is in heaven. Well, we'll stop there and pick up next week. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for being in this space every week with a group of people that love Your Word, love being in Your presence, love being with each other. Thank You, Father, that You're in a transforming relationship with us and our prayers, even our requests, are a way of submitting to that very transforming work. And so we do that today, Father. Ultimately, it's Your kingdom, Your power, and Your glory that we want. Amen.